Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 17, Final Fantasy VII, episode 6. And I'm very happy to say welcome to Mr. West Chance, but also at the same time very sad to say that we do not have Mr. Vincent Reese with us today. Welcome, Mr. West Chance. Yeah, yeah, it's a bittersweet side quests tonight, but hey, you know, forging ahead. It's true. Mr. Vincent Reese, who is still, of course, always welcome on this segment, once a party member, always a pirate party member, very much like an RPG character, and very much like his namesake, Vince, in this own game, uh, will not be with us the entire time, but when we do have him, if we have to do some special side quests in order to get him back, we certainly will, listeners. And so we will be deprived of his specific roguelike skills and his specific materia today, and he'll take with him uh, perhaps not just our materia, but also our hearts, but we will be doing what we can to uh, continue the, the adventure forward and uh, to defeat the mighty Sephiroth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because it turns out that Sephiroth is not such a nice guy. That's what we kind of, that's the gist of tonight's show, if you just wanted it in a nutshell. That's it yeah. right there. Yeah, so it's really interesting. The first thing we ever do after we get outside Midgar, which was functionally our world the entire time we were playing that game until we realized it was but a small part, but potentially a large part of the actual world. Small part in that it occupies not that much space on the world map, but large part in that it will occupy a tremendous amount of our focus during the course of the game because things like in New York City or in the city of Rome during the height of Rome, well, that seems to be where things happen, the heart of the matter. But yeah, the mm -hmm. first thing that we do when we get outside, and it, well, I suppose I should ask you about that. Um, once we get uh -huh. to the world map, and we did talk about this a little bit, was there anything specifically about it that uh, that rang out to you, that uh, of the texture of it, or the fact that you could save, or that you have this communication system that uh, mm -hmm. sort of predates uh, popular use of cell phones by a couple of years? Um, yeah. Well, I never had a phone until college, so that was, yeah pretty pretty weird thing but you don't get that right away also which i didn't remember yeah um, did I. You, you only it only comes it only comes after you do the, the little uh reminiscence uh segment in calm and uh but yeah when you come out of midgard it's um this the the camera is uh focused on the city still so you sort of see what it's supposed to look like from uh, from outside from above mm. um and and yeah, it's suddenly suddenly it's like this one little thing on this huge world map, uh, which you're, which is apparently, like you know, the the game that you were expecting to play all along, right? When you get a Final Fantasy game, that's what you're, kind of in for, is a huge world to explore. So, I mean, it's like a really cool feeling. The music is really cool. All of a sudden, it's like very expansive and sweeping when it's up till then been very um, limited and sort of. Uh, intense when you're doing all your missions and whatnot in Midgar and very technological driven. Um, but yeah, but so calm when you come to that town, um, you, you sort of have a, a little miniature version of, um, of Midgar. And it looks a little bit too like uh, cloud and Tifa's little memory thing that you played out when you first met Tifa, right? Cause there's that central, um, water tower mm, yes yeah and then and then immediately when you go into the inn right you can kind of walk around and talk to people and stuff but when you go into the inn then you're thrown back into cloud's memory and you see that that town right from from the the camera angle um is like exactly the same as calm so oh, there's wow. something weird going with uh with the towns 
being all sort of like cookie cutter now um, after, I guess, presumably after Midgar has kind of, and Shinra have kind of um, extended their influence across the, across this part of the world at least. Well, that's excellent because uh, there is a totally different tone. So returning back to the NPCs and the information that they can convey to you, which was something that Vince drew our attention to originally was, is that the NPCs in comm seem to be perfectly happy with Shinra. They are very much happy for the electric power that Shinra is giving and given and sort of upset at the fact that there are now monsters, but sort of also accepting that with, you know, all the safety and power and wealth that Shinra produces that, well, also, you know, there are going to be problems at times that, that are going to manifest. Right. Um, but yeah, what were, what were we saying? I'm sorry. Just, just the odd, the odd thing about that though, is like, um, yeah, just how peaceful everything is there. Like President Shinra has just been murdered with a huge sword. Right? They they don't they don't seem <laughs> like everything has changed. Well, I guess, but it hasn't, right? Because hey, his son's in charge. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's interesting. That was one thing I wanted to say about the world map. That um, sort of something Peterson lays out in Maps of Meaning, uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, is that um, there there are three uh, fundamental parts to every story and especially mythological stories like Final Fantasy VII clearly is. I mean, the first place is called Midgard, and it's called Final Fantasy VII, for God's sake. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Midgard, of course, means Middle Earth. Um, it is the place from which J.R.R. Tolkien took his idea of Middle Earth, and, because he, of course, studied the old Germanic tales and the Norse tales. But um, the moment you leap... So the three aspects of a story are the known, which is represented often by the Great Father or that which protects you, from anomaly, the unknown, that which no matter how much you know, you can't possibly know that which produces anomaly and is represented by feminine imagery usually, like say um, uh, Shiva or the picture of, um, excuse me, Kali, the famous image that Peterson often brings up of her bearing a full grown man and also already eating his intestines indicating that time has its grasp on you uh, immediately because you are of nature. Um, but, um, that uh, there's also the hero or figure like Marduk or solar character like Jesus who converts the unknown into known, like Simba, who is a solar figure from uh, The Lion King as well. And so if Midgard is your original known territory, you understand how it is, even if it's oppressive as a regime, it is the life that you know. The moment that you leave the safety of the known or the great father and literally, this is played out by the fact that the great father of Midgard is killed by a sword, right? President Shinra, the man who, even though evil, does have limits, unlike his son. Well, you're thrust out into the unknown now, the world itself without shelter, and you're actually subjected to random battles against people like Thebes, um, oh, yeah. which I find very interesting. Um, and out there in that world, and we haven't quite played here yeah, but we will right after we uh, get introduced to Chocobos. Um, yeah. There will be a, a giant serpent, the Midgard serpent. And so Zolum, it's interesting. Right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting because the hero who goes into the unknown has to fight the serpent to get the information to bring back to the known to expand the domain of competency of the known into the unknown while also instigating the habit of... Uh, progressing the known into the unknown rather than allowing the unknown to oppressively continue to press in on the known. That seems to be the fundamental difference between 
uh, a society on the incline and a society on the decline. I just figured that out while I was talking to you. But the parallel I noticed <laughs> is that even in calm, you're immediately faced with a dragon when we go back into the past oh, yeah. and we see Sephiroth and his unspeakable power, his unreal power. No story about Sephiroth can possibly tell you how strong he is. Those words were burned into my soul when I was playing this <laughs> as a 13-year-old. I was just like, the way that people, that Cloud, who had direct experience of him, talked about him with that awe at his skill, and the fact that he had been called brilliant, almost too brilliant, by President Shinra. And I was like a little athlete and magnet student and honor student. But the fact that this guy was the best at everything. And even when you see his character represented in status, his eyes are looking down. He's, he's got a, he's got a, a what, what is the expression for? A supercilious expression, literally a turning up of the eyebrows at people, like looking right. down your nose, very much like Dante, who of course I teach, who looks very much like Sephiroth. Um, I, I, I think. Oh, interesting. And it's just, it is unreal how strong Sephiroth is compared to you at that. Now, I found that, yeah, I found that really interesting because there's two ways to sort of think about that, right? Like either that's how he appeared to Cloud at yes. the time. And so we're getting sort of Cloud's story about him. And for whatever reason, you know, Cloud looked up to him greatly, admired him, wanted to be him and all that. And so that's sort of like Cloud is exaggerating. But then the, the way that he exaggerates is to like cut off the possibility of exaggeration, right? Like he, as, as cool as I'm making Sephiroth sound, as powerful as I'm making him sound, he ex his, his reality exceeds all stories about right. him. Uh, that that's that is a really I think that's a very very interesting claim to make as a storyteller. That's the um, ineffability topos. If that if that is what uh, uh, the the Dante teacher talks about, um, his name is escaping me. But right when when Dante says right, it was so beautiful that I can never really put it into words. You know, I, I can my words fail me at this point. Creating, um, yeah. And that's sort of how that that's how Cloud, you know, describes Sephiroth's power. And I would yeah, I would like to awesome. give some evidence for that sort of Freudian projection of the image of the ideal or perfection, I guess Freudian slash Jungian onto Sephiroth. That's something I've given some thought to because he there there are some sure. elements of him that seem too perfect to be true. A, he cannot take damage. The entire time you are in Nibelheim, <laughs> he takes zero damage which even when you get as strong as you will ever get, you will still take one damage. Um, even when you are at level 100, even though he's just level 50 at this time. So a couple things about Sephiroth. He's level 50, whereas you're level 1. Uh, unlike in the game where you're like level 12 or 13. He can do about 3,000 to 3,200 damage with his sword attack. You do 14 at this time. And in real life, you do like 130 at, uh, <laughs> at um, um, level 13 with the weapons that you have. He also has six materia slots all linked to the Masamune. All his materia is linked to all and is mastered and receives no growth. So part of that, right. I think, is suggestive of the idea that Sephiroth is uh, being idealized by, by Cloud. He yes. is impossibly strong as far as, uh, as far as the young Cloud saw him because he could not conceive of being as strong as he was. In, and as a player... Seeing him do 3,200 damage, well, you've been very proud to maybe do 100 to 200 to maybe 300 damage if you're using the right spell. Yeah. It is unreal. You're like, oh my God, how am I ever going to beat this guy? But that's where the second interpretation comes into me, that he is at that mm -hmm. time conflated with the image of the ideal 
that you will someday transcend that because you will get above level 50 in this game. You'll get to level around 100 and you will be able to do 9,999 damage with your ultimate sword. And you will have a sword that has eight linked material slots, not six. You will go far beyond Sephiroth as he has represented to you. Though at the moment when you see him, he is totally conflated with the self uh, or, or, or that which pulls you into the next stages of reality or, 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 or that which impels a young person to become better because their hero is so much farther ahead or so much higher above than they are. And so that in a Phaedrus like way, you, you flap your wing as high as you possibly can in order, <laughs> in order to either get to them or to transcend them, which is ultimately what I think this is a story about that, uh, you know, cloud is, goes through all this cognitive distortion in order to prove that he is someone that he is not. But when he accepts who he is, he becomes far more than even his hero. Um, <laughs> the the Freudian thing that I think is really funny, and I don't know if this is a real joke or just something I'm reading into <laughs> it, is that Cloud, Cloud has one materia. It's purple, and it's preemptive materia. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he's really excited to get to use it. He's doing his little crunches yes. about how excited he is because he has some new materia. <laughs> yeah, and so the very first so, thing, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, and that's so funny, and he does wear purple, and uh, you know, and he gets talked to sort of like a kid by Sephiroth and he's coming back to his hometown, which is also sort of like very interesting and, and very, very, I think suggestive that there is a dragon that has to be fought before he gets back to his hometown. So what, what so we see a lot of dragon in here. We see the Midgard servant. We see this real actual dragon. We'll later see uh, an image of Genova that looks like a dragon, a silver plated face with wings and red tube like appendage coming out of her making her look like a wyvern or dragon. But what, what is this, that this initial part of the memory that uh, Cloud is facing with Sephiroth? I mean, obviously, my, well, my character got killed, and even if he tries to full life revive you, the dragon will shoot fire and you'll die again, and Sephiroth will take zero damage and then eventually dispatch it <laughs> with, two, with you know, two hits. But what, yeah, what did you make of that initial scene? Was that just setting the stage for how unreally powerful he was? Or what is that dragon doing there? Yeah, well, so they're, they're on this mission, right, because the um, something's up with the reactor. There's these powerful monsters that have been appearing that they've gotten complaints about, right? Um, and we hear about how Cloud really wanted to be like Sephiroth, joined up, and by the time he joined up, the war was over. Right. Like, he couldn't make his name doing Sephiroth-like things, but so he takes extra jobs. And this is much like Cloud as we see him in the game when we first started, right? Like, he takes jobs. To try to to try to like become this person who's so far beyond him, right? right? Um, and so and so the first the first thing that you hear about, right, is how much Cloud admires Sephiroth, and then Sephiroth is like, okay, um, that's probably our our monster out there, right? He's like so yes uh, above it all. He's so like oh whatever, another monster. Here's our monster. Okay, here we yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and so the truck stops. It's like. The, the windshield wipers are going. It's like you're going like on your daily commute or whatever. And um, there's not even and any only... music to the fight. Yeah, right. It's just it's just like so pared down to the essentials. It is very archetypal, right? It's like here's a green dragon. <laughs> here's a guy who is the greatest warrior in the world, and it's not even a contest, right? It's like and in that way. In that way, it's actually um, not very true to the old stories because because dragons aren't just like a random right. enemy 
there's one dragon and you're gonna you're gonna be pushed to your very very limit if you win at yes. all right if you prevail it's a at smoke all. screen so, maybe. oh interesting yes in that way it's um it's doing something interesting with with the mythic material um because it's it's sort of like making a claim and again this is sort of something dante does right like he takes the old material and makes the claim that he is going to incorporate it and and exceed it yes and he's going to imitate it but in a and put his own spin on it and do something with his own you know, language for his own language, for his own people. And, and I find that pretty cool. Um, but the dragon's a little underwhelming at this point. That's, I mean, come on. That's fascinating. You, is, yeah, is, you've given me multiple yeah. thoughts there. So on the one hand, it might be a claim by the game developers that they're going to go beyond the initial, uh, the normal fantasy motifs of going for that dragon, that Smaug-like dragon at the end, that Grendel's mother-like dragon at the end that we see so, mm -hmm. so often, and even specifically in those Germanic sagas like Beowulf. Um, that mm -hmm. of course this game draws so heavily from, but I, but I also wonder, and I do think that's a brilliant point, Wes, and I do think that's that's correct, but I also wonder if it's saying that like so many things in this game, you can't trust appearances, like in the Odyssey, and also like in Dante's Inferno, where uh, Minos express, explicitly says, as Judge of the Dead, trust no one down here, <laughs> right. and so because of how easy it is for Sephiroth to dispatch that dragon. Well, I guess two things I see here. What is a dragon to Cloud is not a dragon to Sephiroth. They're both if they're both walking the path of the hero, the specific obstacle that would be the dragon for Cloud is not the dragon for Sephiroth at this point. And so I suppose this will dovetail nicely into my real point, which is this: Sephiroth will run into a dragon. It will be Genova. It will be a crisis of identity for him. And perhaps, oh, yeah. perhaps if we wanted to read into this sort of like a post-traumatic stress to disorder or like the idea of coming home after being hero above it all he is above it all and in fact carl jung writes of in a certain african tribe i can't remember which one it might have been the elgani that after the a successful raid happened whichever young man did best and was treated like a hero he would be sort of starved for two months afterwards in order to deflate himself so that he could come back to society and so sephiroth has been covered mm -hmm. in glory um uh, during his Wutai campaign. And so if we were to look at him just as a normal human and what he goes through and trying to realize what he is, perhaps what he deals with is this crisis of identity of what now? I was made yeah, as a weapon yeah. or I was made into a weapon by the situation in which I existed. I got to the ultimate apex. I defeated the dragon. Dragons aren't even an issue for me now. What now for me? Um, yeah, and it seems like that question Absolutely. breaks them. Yeah, it's very interesting too because the obvious answer to that question, I think, well, like as a teacher, is I'm going to find someone who I can mentor, ah. right, and train and, and teach what I've learned from all this stuff. I'm going to like tell my story as as a as a storyteller would do. But he's so stoic and so like in his own head, selfish. He's doing some thinking, maybe. But he's he's not articulating anything, and and as much as Cloud is like this little puppy dog, like teach me stuff, like show me cool stuff, you know. And this does happen when you fall down, um, the bridge breaks, and you fall down, and you find the Mako uh, spring. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool, right? He kind of like comes out of his shell a bit there and, and tells kind of like what what Mako is and how. It but works even then, he's sort of like, but, oh, you don't know this yet, like a bad teacher, yeah. not like a good teacher. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's he's not got the uh, yeah the gentle coaching <laughs> down so much, but but at the same time, um, that is I think you know part of his fascinate like what makes him so interesting to Cloud is that that he's so aloof and that he's not mm-hmm. forthcoming really with with his stories. So. so so to some extent, I wonder to what it to what extent he is. Uh, sort of an archetypal representation of what's the problem with an altered carbon and what is the problem in, in Westworld and sort of seems to be the Luciferian problem that rather than wanting to pass on his gift and improve it to the next generation, he feels as if he has yeah. in some way mastered life and should himself be passed on throughout all generations it, rather than in, in, engaging in metempsychosis or the transmigration of the soul, like the old uh, Pythagoreans believed in. Um, and, and of course the questions do through the host, um, though implicitly and hard to articulate, it's as if he wants to propagate himself across time rather than that, which he embodies, uh, the hero, instead of teaching the next hero, he wishes to remain the hero at all times for all time, because nobody else is worthy of being hero because he hasn't taught the next generation. I would say I ran into quite a bit of that when I first ran into teaching. How do you people not all this, know all this stuff I know? It's like, because you're the master who needs to bequeath this knowledge to his students. Um, but I wonder, yeah, well, go on. Oh, just, uh, there, there is a pretty clear like hint that that's a thing to think about too. I, I don't want to say that I'm just projecting this because it's, you know, the thing I do every day, but <laughs> there's also Zangan, Mr. Zangan, yes. the ninja, the, the fighter teacher, and he's Tifa's teacher and he travels around and teaches people how to fight. And he's like, you know, I have a skilled student here in town. Um, and then it, it turns out she's the one who's going to guide uh, everybody up to the to the reactor. So so I think that there's like a little there is something there about. And, and of course, Dr. Gast's books in the in the basement yes. that we find. Why did you there's have to die? There. Yes. And uh, that does seem to be a fundamental difficulty, because if you try to maintain your role as the hero, you shift roles from the hero to the tyrant. You're now going against nature, against the limited time. You have to change the rules of the game while you're playing in order to make the game suitable to yourself. It's interesting because it's very similar to uh, sort of a principle I saw, uh, a, a rendition of Richard III last night called Sea is the King, where essentially this character, Richard III, because life has not worked out to where he is the heir to the throne, he has to conspire like Iago from Othello to get what he wants by killing people, killing his young uh, nephew, and in history actually killed both his nephews, um, becoming Lord Protector mm-hmm. through threats to the queen directly, um, and through having uh, the man that she was most interested in being Lord Protector, the uh, I've forgotten his name because I just saw it for the first time last night, uh, he has him murdered as well, and then eventually dies himself covered in blood and, and infamy. And so <laughs> it, in yeah. order to get what he wants, he must become something that is totally opposite from what he ever wanted to be. And it's Mm. almost as if part of what Sephiroth forgets is that what makes him who he is are the great deeds he's done as a hero, not simply the skills he has. When he uses his skills to defeat Wutai, to take pictures and kill dragons, he is a hero. But when he starts using them on the people he considers weaker than he is, that are obviously weaker than he is, because they're not made to be a weapon, then he turns into a tyrant. It's not a skill issue. It's a, it's a path of life sort of issue uh, is, is what I, I think I see. And we haven't even explained exactly what it is that he discovers about himself yet. Uh, so maybe we should yeah, get into that. 
yeah so it's interesting so you you kill the dragon it's like okay now we can move on and you come to the town and again it's like a little bit like a parallel of calm where the party breaks up you're free to explore but when you want to proceed with the story you go to the inn and you uh go upstairs and talk to the, the other party member this in this case sephiroth so but it's cool because you can walk around the town and this is where again clouds like fuzzy memory thing comes into play a bit because because you can sort of choose whether he remembers things or not. Hmm. Um, and if you say, yeah, I remember this, then you'll see a little scene where he goes into, you know, see his mom and you see that that scene replayed more or less with some ex extended stuff. That, that scene um, was really interesting and creepy to me. The fact that it kept uh, fuzzing out one segment right. to another. Yeah. And it's it's almost like and this is the last time he ever sees his mother alive. And I was just, I was wondering what you thought about what that meant because that it was, that was unique within the memory scenes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very strange, right? That he is uncertain whether he remembers going in or not. And again, maybe you could say that's like some kind of trauma induced, whatever, but it also, it also is so odd how, how he's either got a very, very limited relationship with his mother to the point where he doesn't really feel anything. He tells it so coldly, he doesn't want to dwell on it. Or he's like, again, sort of not dealt with those emotions and he's not really comfortable sharing them at this point. So you, it's it's all very amb ambiguous, his his storytelling. And I, I found that a really interesting way to to kind of tell this backstory, right? That that you play through it, but he's also narrating parts of it. It is interesting it. too, because um, I, I just to add an element to that, he, he is between so many different worlds. When he returns home, it is the place that was once his home in known territory that he left in order to make soldier his known territory. And so now he's come back with a new allegiance, um, not simply mm -hmm. to his home, but to the Shinra corporation. And he's telling this story to these people that have now become closer to him, closer than just uh, a terrorist organization, avalanche affiliation. Now I guess friends after they've survived that initial Midgar bit, but he is, he, he was just a bounty hunter, and still that is the stipulated relationship he has to them. He is there for pay or to get Ares and has not yeah. yet uh, indicated that he has a, you know, a bond of friendship level affiliation with these individuals around him. So, so I do see him as an individual, and not even to add in the fact that he's actually been lying to himself a good bit of time, that, that, that finds himself right. with divided loyalties and perhaps doesn't know how to to talk about things because when he goes back to see his mother, perhaps he feels like he should act like a soldier around her rather yeah. than as her son, because he has been initiated into this new part of life. And that part of coming back to your hometown is to realize you can never go home again or mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like something like that. Well, yeah. So we were saying you go to sleep that night, you wake up, you, you take a photo and, uh, you offered to take a photo if you talked to this NPC earlier who has a camera and he says, I don't take photos of nobodies. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Which I thought, I was wondering whether that was a real memory that Cloud had from when he was wearing the Shinra gear uh, and was not actually a soldier. Uh, maybe that was one of his few real ones. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, or just another joke. Like he makes a joke about finding prosthetic underwear in Tifa's house oh. in her, in her cabinet. Right. It's like, oh. it's, it's it's like there's little again like little little uh, jokes that kind of lighten the mood a little bit, but yeah. And so Tifa, we find, is going to be our guide, and she guides us all the way to this reactor. And we do have somebody die on the way there. There's a 
a bridge that breaks. And Sephiroth says, I don't mean to sound cold, but we're not going to find this guy and we have limited time. Um, and so we continue on to the reactor. And then Tifa, you can't come in. This is, we have Shinra, you know, engineering secrets in here. Stay outside. Uh, and perhaps that's a metaphor for, you know, sort of Cloud's whole heart situation when it comes to Tifa as well, always keeping her slightly on the outside. Um, and um, it would be interesting if we analyze Kingdom Hearts at some point because they, they do go a long way to, I think, illustrating the, the symbolism of the relationship between Tifa and, um, and uh, Cloud. I think they go a long way to suggest that Sephiroth is like the sort of inner loathing that keeps Cloud from connecting to a real human or something like that, which I think is a very, very interesting and strong claim. And especially when I was in high school and early college, it's very easy to be a young man experience some self-loathing like yeah. that that can prevent you from being in a relationship, I think, or, or at least being a good partner. But so we get to the Mako reactor and we see this Genova sign yeah. and we see these, these, these horrific creatures that are being produced by Mako and Sephiroth deduces that this is the doing of the lowly Hojo. And he says, this won't bring you up to the same level as Ghast. Um, but then he, he, he seems, he, again, you get that, that whining sound like, like you can hear his head about to explode with pressure. And he grabs his head mm. and it's like, Sephiroth, what's happening? Cloud, Zach says. And, and Sephiroth's like, was I made this way? Am I, am right. I just a weapon? And I, when I was younger, I always had trouble realizing or understanding why that would lead to, to such a breakdown of him. But yeah, what did you think of that scene? Exactly, and perhaps even in conjunction with him at the bottom of the Shinra mansion, reading and reading and reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so again, I think it's it's interesting how the the Mako reactor is explained a little bit. It's like what it's doing there. It's because this area is rich in this in this raw power um, that flows um, in the earth, right? And you and you pass by it in its natural form. And so you get this kind of image of the beauty of things that are natural yes. uh, as opposed to right the the horror and corruption that is uh, Shinra's reactor and, and Hojo's whole experiment. And so I think with that with that kind of symbol in mind, you know, um, Sephiroth goes in his own mind from being this kind of beautiful, perfect crystal of human potential or, or whatever he is, like he's the perfect thing to now he's just one of this, um, this, this group, this uh, prototype of this thing that has been created in this disgusting way, right? And, and so his, his, his problem there is not just that he's been created, but that there's a bunch more who have been created, ah, right? So he's not- He's no longer unique. So that's very interesting because it's like, I do, I do feel like that is a problem with what the unions call the individuation process and what we also see in the new Blade Runner movie, that the big realization that a human seems to make is not that they're perfectly unique and that they're actually like a god, like the the new the new enlightenment sort of California yoga thinkers would suggest, like you're afraid of your own power. It's like that's that's absolutely not true. You're afraid of the fact that you don't have power. It's quite the opposite. Uh, it's what seems to be sort of the eye-opening realization of individuation is, is your isomorphism with other humans. The fact mm -hmm. that you are essentially the exact same as them, and that's why ethics works. Um, 
because you know how to treat people because you know how you feel in certain situations. And so the, it's a deeply humbling experience, but also in becoming awakened like a bodhisattva or like the figure of the divine wet in the West, like one of the haloed saints or Jesus it is in recognizing your own vulnerability or your own isomorphism. That recognition is what makes the difference between you and those who are not individuated. You can now walk the path of the hero. You have walked out of the cave, taken the anomalous information and are now ready to bring it back in as one of the many carriers of it, like one of the many bees as a part of a hive. But that seems to be precisely the issue with, with Sephiroth, like you said, in realizing that he's one of the bees bringing back the pollen. He's like, no, 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 no. I am the bee. I have the pollen. There will be no other bees. So, so, to some extent, so I have a question then, because he does do this reading and then assumes that he is this thing called an ancient because his mother, he assumes, is an ancient based on the false research or the incorrect research uh, or limited research that he has access to of Professor Gast. Um, and then decides that uh, the, the inheritors of the earth who decided no longer to be itinerant like the Cetra, the ancients, were that went from planet to planet to planet and decided to inhabit it, which I was telling you earlier, I thought might be like an idea based on or, or similar to the ideal of Cain and Abel or, or moving from a hunting style culture of going from place to place and using up the resources to more an agrarian style culture that um, what he seems to, sorry, I'm losing my train and adding all those amplifications. Um, what he seems to do or well, yeah go on sorry sorry question. sorry yeah i i gotta catch it again no i mean you started from saying you had a question based on that that problem of sephiroth's um seeing himself as one of a, a group sort of thing um versus an individual then you kind of went into the limited research that he was able to do down in the, oh, in the spooky yeah. so basement to what extent uh, is he justifying his his initial idea that he is special by trying to identify with this special group that no longer exists in order to justify his wretched hate of those who are the same as he is, but can't be the same as he is because he's already decided or been told that he is the hero and the most special person essentially on earth. Um, yeah. It's not super logical, is it? Yeah. Like, Oh, I, I hate that. I'm one of this sort of thing. Uh, but again, I think it's, it's a question of him thinking, okay, but, but I have this special relationship to the real thing, right? I, I, I am somehow privileged in my descent from the actual, right? The, the, the primary uh, being, the ancient, etc. cetera. Uh, that makes, that's what's, what I'm going to kind of hold on to here and um, rebuild myself around this, this identity. Which um, and so it's an interesting kind of, yeah, it's an interesting kind of, appropriation of the group um, rather than being like losing his identity within a, a, a manifold uh, process. Or and what's interesting too, is that what we'll find out about Genova is that she is not an ancient, but was rather the cataclysm from the skies, which you might take as a symbol for an evil or anomalous thought that leads to the destruction of a people. And if you take her to be that, and you see that, gen that, Sephiroth enacting the incest motif of the hero 
or the dark hero. He's a lunar hero, of course, right? He wears black and has silver hair. Um, and so he's like the moon or a figure of darkness or that which happens in the night. And he, he joins with Genova, his mother, the winged serpent. And so we were talking in our text, our group text message. And I was suggesting that that was sort of like Lilith imagery because it is when the dark hero, the cane figure, the Lucifer hero mates with the great mother or anomaly that the monsters, the mini monsters of Lilith are born into the world, which is actually literally what's happening in the game at that time. But, but what I'm, I'm suggesting happens there is that Sephiroth, um, sorry, I'm losing my train again. Uh, Sephiroth, oh, Sephiroth as lunar hero mating with uh, the, the mother figure. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm losing it. Wes. I, I was right there too. Um, oh no. Well, he's like, he's, he's, it's one of the coolest cutscenes. I mean, along with the fire thing, which happens here too, where he, he goes face to face with the, um, the bust of Genova in front of her actual specimen chamber. Um, he rips it out. Right. Uh, and then, and that's kind of where Cloud's memory cuts out as well. Oh, and I, um, I remembered it. I remember what I was saying. If you take what she was as an anomalous thought that destroyed a civilization before, and she is the anomalous thought that that takes over Sephiroth's mind as well. The the mating of the anomalous thought with the once hero who becomes the now dark hero, the the bringer forth of monsters and destruction to society. The once savior now corrupted by the anomalous thought now will bring about the destruction of the people. And in fact, he will attempt himself to bring a cataclysm from the sky. Um, yeah. He will attempt to infect, which, you know, we can take as a physical, like a literally physical metaphor, or as he is trying through his bad example to infect people like Genova, to infect the current humans with his thoughts that will lead to their own destruction in a way that Genova did in the past to the ancients. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, because says to cloud right is like basically i'm of this higher sort of yes. being you you're a you're a traitor to the like true race you know it's it's very it's very dark and it's very um self-aggrandizing right and um and it takes again it yeah it takes his 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 actual great talent and ability and then directs it to this purpose which is not only like evil but it, it turns out to be just I guess false, right? As we learn more about right. what perhaps even the worst part about that, that, and I, you know, I wish we had Vince here for the historical analysis, but to what extent the figure of Heidegger and uh, a person believing he is from a superior race that justifies his behavior to what extent that reflects on the world war II Nazi ideology, but also very much the, the uh, Japanese ideology, which they taught in their schools that the Chinese and the Manchurians were actually non-humans and thus they could justify any sort of experiment on them, like Unit 731 and the sorts of atrocious things that they did. So I wonder to what extent as well, that sort of a re reflection, again, one of those moral reflections on, on how a, a totally anomalous and incorrect way of viewing reality can turn you into a monster. Um, yeah. So, so, and that is ultimately the most interesting thing, right? That... It is not Cloud doesn't give doesn't give a hoot. He doesn't give a hell. He doesn't give it. He doesn't care at all that Sephiroth might have been grown in a petri dish 
run one of these tubes. It's his deeds and his utter skill that make him who he is. He's incredible. And it's his choices that he makes. And it's also ultimately his choices that make him into a monster. And so I I find that to be so interesting that, that, you know, as a kid playing the game, it's like, that's so obvious to you. It's like Sephiroth, no, don't let this break you. It's like, that was my visceral feeling. And even playing back through, it was like, no, don't let this be what takes you out. Like, it's so obviously a tragic fall for him. It is. Yeah. And and it's tough too, because yeah, you you are so primed to um to be like Cloud, fascinated with this character. Um and and everything like objective about him is so great when you get to see him briefly in battle, you know, and and just kind of being so cool looking everywhere. Um but but the problem is, yeah, then then he very, very quickly um, gets a little bit of of new uh, new self knowledge. Right. Or, or as it turns out, again, he kind of jumps the gun on it. But that seems to be part of the, the part of the tragedy in a way. Right. Is like how how lightly uh, his his whole self image um, crumbles right. and how, how much that you know obviously it has deranged cloud's memory totally because he again has has blocked out the end of the scene he lacks and he lacks important things like you know how did i survive <laughs> why how am i here yeah. you know kind of the essential question yeah yeah are, are outside of his ken so. because according to the story he's been telling people uh it, it just he can't <laughs> if he is going to maintain mm-hmm. the lie he cannot tell how he defeated Sephiroth because he as an actual sin or a soldier is the one who defeated Sephiroth, not as Zack. And so that's why he can't right. manifest that memory because it, it, it doesn't fit with the current narrative that he's saying. And I wonder to what extent, Oh yeah, gone. No, just when you said that, like it realized that now he's in a way at Sephiroth's point of identity break. He just hasn't been pushed right. over it. See, that's exactly thinking. where I was going because we will see that happen. And I wonder to what extent that's comment by the game on just how fragile all of our identities are. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that's a little, that's pushing it a little because obviously it's Sephiroth um, and we will see Cloud go through one and get through it, but it's not easy what he's going to get through and putting himself yeah. back together. Um, and I don't know. What do you think about that so far? What do you, so we we're just now putting it together. That it's like this guy had this fragile identity, or perhaps people have fragile identities. And when anomalous information comes, you know, it reminds me of the uh, story of the Buddha that Peterson often tells, where he's kept inside this walled garden, which is, of course, the great father or civilization. We're all within the walled garden, too. We're children of summer in that way, as George R.R. Martin would say. Um, We don't have the anomalous ice beings come to kill us, or the Dothraki, which are all symbols of anomaly, right? And um, so... And so the the Buddha is kept from anomaly. And once anomaly shows up in the figure of um, either a dead man or a, a, a an old man, uh, he, his his whole identity, his whole way of looking at life is shattered. And he takes no pleasure in drink or in women or in food anymore. Um, and so it just, it, it makes me wonder to what extent this is a comment on the fact that any at any time the great mother or anomalous information can hit you with something that rocks your narrative and does not fit within it. And what the path of the hero is, is going through 
the terrible struggle of integrating that information. Maybe it's the fact that you were not in soldier and are not a hero in any way, and that enables you to become a hero, or that you are not as much as you thought you were, like in Sephiroth's case, or you do not owe as much to your own your own decisions as perhaps you thought you did, even though, of course, he's been a stooge for Shinra his entire life. Um, and he rejects the anomalous information. He, he reads ex yeah. as many books as possible and comes to an incorrect interpretation about what he is, essentially, seemingly, to maintain the idea of how special he is. But now he has to be a being of a different sort of race and species and have a totally different goal, which is to destroy everything that he once uh, held dear and helped to build and promote. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like all of your party members so far have something in their past which has either um, gotten away from them, right, or that they haven't haven't come to terms with. Um, so I think it is. It seems pretty clear that there's there's a there's a much um, a much more paradigmatic kind of element to this. It's not just Cloud and uh, and Sephiroth um, because Eris with her mother. Um, and her sort of unique powers and abilities. Um, you have Barrett with his gun arm, which has not yet been explained. Uh, you got Atifa, who who knows the story that Cloud is telling and doesn't speak up and doesn't bring it all together, put it together. Right. Um, you know, she she's like supporting him and trying to help him, right? And then uh, Red Thirteen, right? Who's um, sort of just like appears on the scene kind of mysteriously no one's asked him about his whole story yet uh but he's just kind of along for the ride at this point right so right yeah the the, the dynamic though that that's that's different with with cloud and sephiroth right is that that sort of reflectiveness of it right you, you see yourself in someone else and you can sort of see the problem for them but then it's so much harder to uh, to look inside and, and, and get it to, to figure it out. Right. Um, even though you have this very clear story that's kind of mapping it out for you. Oh, right? and so you're helping me to see. And so perhaps that's what the pursuit of Sephiroth is, which ultimately ends up being a pursuit into your own mind in the final battle. You're pursuing so. not an external sort of flaw or piece of information, but an inform a piece of information about yourself as represented by a figure from the external Sephiroth is no longer still yeah. alive except for within Cloud's mind as a figure for that piece of information which he has not accepted, which is he is not as great as Sephiroth, and he failed in his mission to become a hero. It was the wrong time. He didn't have the time, and he didn't make it to soldier. And that, you know, you, just like, you know, the unions often said, quoting, uh, you know, Christ, it's you need to be able to see the mode in your own eye before seeing the speck in another's. And the, the, beam, the, beam. the beam in your own eye and the, and the spec in yeah. the others. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So spec must mean mode. I need to look that word up. M-O-T-E. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. That it is so easy to see the flaws of others because you do not have to correct them. But to see your... I yeah, mean, go on. That, that's like, that's the thing that eyes do, right? Like you look out and you see stuff outside um, and it's really painful and like takes a lot of work to then like have to kind of look in the mirror right but but what a powerful like unique again that's like what is actually unique about human beings seems to be their the, the reflective capacity the, the communication of stories and culture and stuff so 
I mean, it's, it's, it's both the, the great gift, right. That Sephiroth gives you and this like horrible burden that he places upon you to like understand what he's done and how to not do that. Yeah. And I mean, basically. like you were saying that, that, that epoch making scene where the fire oh, yeah. are going and it goes into cutscenes, So you get to see him in all his regal beauty and he just looks up <laughs> with his cold, pale green eyes, his Mako green eyes, and looks at you with a look of pure, aloof malice, as if he doesn't know you at all, as if it is the evil within yourself coming out in a moment refle of reflection and you are seeing yourself for all the horror you can be, if we're going to tie that to the self-reflection piece that, that it is as if Lucifer himself is looking out at you and it is a moment of it's, choice. Is that you or is that not you? Sort of like what Luke has to go yeah. through when he is down on, I think, Dagobah, where Yoda is and, and oh, yeah. he confronts Darth Vader in the place of challenge and he tries to strike him down, but he fails the test because he fails to realize that that is a projection that comes from his own heart. That that is yeah. that image, that image of hate, that is him. That is his hate. That is the evil within him. That this is that this Sephiroth, this thing that Sephiroth has become, is also what we can all become in the same moment. And that seems to be much harder to understand. Yeah, yeah. And he's sort of and Sephiroth sort of even says that, right? Like he says, you know, cloud to cloud, right? You're different in that in that um, kind of recognition moment when he's finding those those pod people outside of Genova's chamber, and he's he says, you know, of course you're different, and that's just kind of tossed off. We don't know enough about what um, what that might mean for for Cloud's uh, his potential, his um, his gifts, and and whatnot. Um, but yeah, clearly there's something very interesting the game is doing here where, where it shows you the character who by all appearances should be the character that you're playing as, right? As the, the hero of this story. And then it shows you why you are not going to be that character, why he's not in your party. He's not going to be, um, joining the adventure, right? But it's quite the reverse, right? He, in some way is the, um, is the instigator for this new, this world uh, scale adventure that happens outside of, of Midgard. And he is an excellent one. He is known as brilliant. Like the idea of Lucifer yeah. as rationality that Milton puts forward. He has a longer sword that only he can use that no one else can. So he has that pride of place that Lucifer once enjoyed in heaven before the coming of the sun. Again, in Milton's paradise lost, he experiences a fall and that he drops out of the dominance hierarchy and that he sort of disappears from the world like he has been thrown into hell and and he in fact uh antagonizes the world in the same way that lucifer will mm -hmm. attempt to antagonize uh eden and thus the rest of the world bringing death and sin into it uh and in fact when advent children comes out he he there's actually a planet-like sickness that the individuals have they have been sickened by what has happened um by the, some sort of life stream poisoning as if, uh, as if the very planet itself is. Hmm. I, I'm not sure where to go with that. I don't want to go environmentalist with that, <laughs> with, with that exactly because I, I, I think it's more 
the people's connection with their inner nature, which is making them sick through their habits of life is, is more likely what the point is there. It's more an ethical point from a, a, a state of behavior in accordance with social nature rather than um, like the plants are trying to kill people um, <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan style. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, Wes. Yeah. So is there anything else that we should, we should cover before we, we get off the horn here? Well, I, again, I think it's really interesting. The, the cutscene with the fire, the cutscene with the, uh, the chamber of Genova. We, we didn't talk much about this, this glimpse we get of, of yes. her form within, within there. So it's really strange what happens there. Cause you sort of, you see him confront what looks like a face, but it turns out to just be part of the machinery that he rips aside. And then the actual Genova is this humanoid, like mass of tissue and eyeballs uh, that is, I guess, frozen or, or like suspended in, in this, uh, this spe special capsule. Uh, and it's, it's got this awesome Gothic like lettering you know, for the Genova project. Uh, and so there's, it's, it's a kind of, um, you know, idol almost is, is, is how it looks. Uh, and, and he's got this, this is kind of the first like emotion that we see in Sephiroth's eyes, right? He's got this incredible desire um, for, for this, this being uh, to, to take it and, you know, appropriate. Right. It's, um, Zeal even. It's, this idol it's awesome yeah it's gone the the art i think was was something that um really set this game apart at the time when it came out right the the cinematic quality of it uh and i think along with that is is the music which um i don't remember if we mentioned yet but so when you kind of go and you seek sephiroth out in the in the basement after he's gotten weird um, the music is much more sinister, mm -hmm. right? And then, it, and then it sort of, yeah, it's it's this heartbeat thing that it does, and then it it just explodes uh, into the the Genova theme. I'm going to see Sephiroth. Mother, and then, oh man, I think you do it better. It's it's so cool. I. I think that um, that and the fire thing uh, really, I think even more than watching Sephiroth in, in battle, you know, like that for me was, was such a, uh, it showed me kind of how powerful um, storytelling in games, how, how sort of visceral uh, that could be. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I know the video games have gotten a lot more technically advanced and stuff, but those, it's those kind of same techniques I think that are, are really interesting to see um, how they're brought together and, and the combination of all these different art forms of music, of visuals um, with the gameplay is, is kind of a, it's not something that you can really reproduce with any other medium. So I, I think it's a real, it's a very interesting area um, to kind of pursue as we go along how, how that stuff works. Together. Yeah. And like, like you were saying, structurally speaking, it, it doesn't matter that there are technical advances in the music. The fact that it goes from a heartbeat to this blaring that's just very tense and scary 
it, it's indication of one of those moments that Vince described. I forget the term that he used for it, for when you hit a spot that, and you have clear recognition that there is no going back. This is when you know Sephiroth uh-huh. has turned. When Sephiroth yeah. as hero, as your ally, is no longer there. He is now following a different ideal. He now has a new goal, and he goes to join with the winged serpent, Genova. And just a couple things about uh, a winged serpent as an idea of a dragon is, a serpent is a symbol of transformation and because it can shed its skin. And so that'll be interesting to talk about tomorrow with Harry Potter that we see both a phoenix and a serpent with its, sh- with its skin shed down in the Chamber of Secrets, yeah. two symbols of transformation. Um, and we will see a transformation literally happen when a sword pops out of a hat instead of a hair. Um, <laughs> but um, but that um, uh, the, the idea of a winged serpent is that there is this yeah. chthonic or earthly element, this thing that comes from under the ground linked with this thing that is heavenly and cerulean and goes throughout the sky is above the ground. And so a winged serpent is sort of like a tree in that it is roots connected to thing in the sky or like a human that has feet on the Mm. ground, but head in the air. So it is, so a winged serpent, I think in this respect reflects an embodied ideal and when, and the embodied ideal is the anomalous embodied ideal or the, the, the idea that will destroy the current known territory. And that's what Genova has done in the past to the ancients and does in the present and will do forever on as a, as a representation of the ideal that when embodied destroys civilization. And so the fact that Sephiroth joins with her, I take to mean that he now embodies the role of the, the villain, the antagonist, Lucifer. Um, Right, he thinks he thinks he's, um, you know, being true to his his self, but in fact he's he's corrupted and fallen away from kind of gone crooked, uh, from his. his That's potential. right. It strikes me very much like the story of Cain, where he has made it mm-hmm. with sin, the incest motif again, right? And Peterson brings up that it's the the verb in Hebrew used is like what a a in <laughs> a cat in heat feels. Um, or mm. sin or something like that. And, and so it's like, it's very, it's very sexualized in that respect that like sin and you become one Sephiroth and Genova become one. He embodies this cataclysmic force now and, right. and, and changes entirely. And it's, it's, you feel it as a, as a player, you've looked up to him through your cloud eyes and it's, it's yeah. a very sad, I to this day remember my sadness at the fall of Sephiroth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, it's also like so alluring, right? It's so unsettling in that way. The, the awesome coolness of him in the fire and in the, in the chamber with this, uh, you know, bodacious goddess evil thing. Like, whoa, <laughs> that's... Part of what's so unsettling about it is that it's attractive. It's like powerfully alert. Right, and it is attractive. Um, she she is a buxom female figure with creepy eyes all over her areola <laughs> and other parts of her her body. Um, sort of, sort of in this, I I, I don't know Argos like form. Argos the 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 creature of infinite eyes who's slain by Hermes to recollect either Io or 
I think Io or or a Ropa, but I, I think it is Io. Um, and yeah, after he slays Argus, who was stationed there by Hera in order to guard the former lover of Zeus, he he takes the eyes and throws them into the peacock feathers, and the, mm. the peacock becomes the creature that draws the chariot of Hera in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And right, and so uh, that's very interesting that she has this sort of peacock esque aspect. This sort of I don't I don't know I if it's increased perspective or awareness or perhaps that it's a predatory sort of idea that she's always looking for the next victim with which to join. Uh, yeah, and she's been kind of neutralized to that point, and as you see later, right, she's her body has been sort of dismembered. By the time you find her in Shinra headquarters uh, five years later or whatever, right, um, that you you see some of her there. So something in the in the meantime has happened uh, that, again, it's like it ratchets up like the mystery um, of of what happened in that moment and what has gone on in these last few years that things have gotten so, so out of whack. Yeah, she's lost um, her head. <laughs> just as perhaps we have Hmm. yeah well well well, i think i think we covered quite a bit of ground tonight uh wes and um you know we had to cover we had to cover it with two rather than the three this time around and so the battles are a little bit harder we take a little bit more damage as we go through but we do get i suppose more experience for the the effort and so Yeah. yeah It's it. Yeah. And it's all, I guess, to the to the end of um, the side quests. Right. Like this one uh, is one that we we went off on on our own. We we plugged away at while while Vince is doing his own quests. And we do hope that our paths will join up again down the line. We we find in calm. Here's an interesting little thing that's kind of funny up in the tower room of one of the buildings, you can find a weapon that you can't use, uh, a, uh, a peacemaker ah. pistol. It's a handgun and you pick it up. This one you pick up, even though you left behind the awesomest um, weapon for Kate yep. Sith back in Shinra headquarters. Right. Megaphone. But this one, you pick up as, yeah, the megaphone, right? Well, who's going to use that? But the gun, obviously that's handy for somebody just haven't met him yet right so that's a that's a side quest for another right, time right so we're picking up weapons and hopefully we can equip them to another character soon yes. that'd be very nice that'd be very nice all right well uh another wonderful foray into the adventure that is the adventure of our life mr west the chance yeah with some final fantasy stuff. with some final fantasy seven thrown in right exactly um all right well until next time yep take care you too